Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of news from hundreds of sources, plus links to our own original pieces on the website. So sign up for SupChina Access, you get all of that, way more. Stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, not too far from where I spent the first 12 years of my life, just about an hour south of here. Unfortunately, Jeremy, the uh, pulchritudinous policy pundit that we know as Jeremy Pretty Boy Goldcorn, uh, he unfortunately had a scheduling snafu, and he was supposed to be in New York today, uh, but had to fly out a little bit earlier. So uh, he says hi. Uh, one of the most important things to get right these days, and I think this is true for, for many countries around the world trying to come to grips with China's rise and trying to formulate a sensible policy toward that nation, uh, the thing that's important to get right is is what is Beijing actually after? What is it that, that Beijing wants? What are its national capabilities? What will its capabilities allow it to do? Uh, we want to overstate neither China's ability to be a disruptive actor nor its intention to disrupt and at the same time, we don't want to understate these things either. Uh, it's very difficult, of course, for many people to right-size the risks that China presents. Uh, and as a result, we're seeing real debates, not just here in the U.S., but also in Australia, in New Zealand, in, in various European co- countries, in, in African capitals, and really anywhere else in the world that China touches about how to respond to China. Uh, in recent years, somebody whose writings I've always found to be clear-eyed, grounded, and, and free of any undue alarmism is Jessica Chen Weiss. Jessica is associate professor in government at Cornell University, author of a book on Chinese nationalism called Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protest in China's Foreign Relations, which I am ashamed to say I have not yet read, but I am eager to. Uh, and I'm eager to hear more about it today, and we can today, because she is our guest, a long overdue guest. So uh, welcome to Seneca. Thanks so much, Kaiser. It's great yeah. to be here. Jessica, in case you don't know, if you want to read some of her great stuff, it's on The Monkey Cage, where she's an editor at The Washington Post. Uh, and she's been uh, writing quite a bit, including uh, recent pieces in, in foreign affairs recently. And that's where uh, we probably want to start today. But I want to ask you first, Jessica, uh, something has evidently lit a fire with you so that you've been like especially prolific of late writing, uh, not just, like I said, in academic journals, but also uh, toward more popular audiences as well. What explains this this very, I should say, very laudable burst of energy uh, that's come out of you recently? <laughs> oh, that's funny you should ask, Kaiser. Well, I think the practical answer is that uh, I have twins that were born about two years ago. And uh, so there was a period, a sort of fallow period where I was uh, doing nothing but not working and I felt that there wasn't enough work in my work life. Life balance, but I think more practically, what actually has lit a fire is really my growing concern about the direction of U.S.-China relations. I think that the United States and China are really, in some ways, headed off a cliff, and I'm I share your concerns that there is sort of more alarmism uh, than there is uh, sort of a factual basis for a lot of the 
the terms and the claims that are flying around. And so it feels like a moment at which, um, you know, it's too important not to speak out more publicly. I mean, to continue to do the kind of, you know, empirically grounded, sort of theoretically sophisticated research, but also to to speak out in the public arena to essentially correct some of, I think, the kind of hyperbole and alarmism that's that's going around. Uh, very well said. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, something you've been doing very well. Uh, one piece in particular that caught my attention, and I think caught the attention of a lot of China watchers, uh, was in this very recent volume of Foreign Affairs. Uh, there was a piece that you wrote called A World Safe for Autocracy. And I, I think it was just that, if I'm not mistaken. It was really an effort to, to right-size the, the China challenge to the U.S. And I think it was kind of this a response to the overestimation of, of what it is that China wants. Um, because there are a lot of people who believe that China is out to really upend the existing international order to supplant the U.S. as the dominant power. Uh, so is that a, essentially a correct read on what your intention was with that piece? Yeah, it's really a, an attempt to push back against the idea that China is an existential threat to democracy around the world. That fear, I think, has given rise to concerns and a debate over whether there is a new Cold War in the offing. Um, but you know, I find that you know, unlike the Soviet Union or Mao's China, China hasn't been under the CCP engaged in an offensive effort to spread autocracy or defeat democracy. Rather, it's been engaged in a defensive struggle to combat pressures at home for uh, democratic change. And so I think it's really important to distinguish between a defensive strategy to make the world safe for autocracy, to coexist with democracy, rather than a messianic effort to spread autocracy uh, around the world. Right. So you describe it, you end up describing this sort of a disgruntled and increasingly ambitious stakeholder mm. yeah, in this U.S.-led international order and not an implacable enemy of that order. I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, what's got Beijing so disgruntled, though? What, what are the limits of its ambitions in, in wanting to address its complaints about the way things are? I mean, it, it just stops that defensive, to stop criticizing China for the way that it handles things? Or? Well, I think... Their primary focus is on maintaining power, unchallenged one-party rule at home, and increasingly under Xi Jinping, you know, a personalist uh, form of dictatorship. But there are other, you know, international institutions that you know China feels are sort of have treated China unfairly. We may disagree with that. They, of course, have also benefited a lot from participating in these international institutions. But but China would like to have more power and influence in these institutions, more say in how uh, the world is governed. And I think that they're increasingly interested in promoting their ideas within those institutions, um, which is to say revising them, revising the rules, um, but not, you know, kicking them over. Right. right. So we're talking about the Bretton Woods institutions. We're talking about uh, many uh, United Nations affiliated organizations. So specifically what? Like right. So, you know, in, for instance, uh, you know, increasing voting shares, uh, you know, within the IMF or, you know, advancing complementary institutions like the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. You know, you can see the, you know, the BRIs in, in the same kind of vein. Um, also within, you know, the human rights norms, you know, promoting what the Chinese have long seen as sort of social and economic human rights as opposed to uh, political rights. So on a variety of domains, you know, whether it's like you know, internet governance, uh, promoting state-centric uh, norms of how the internet should be governed. Internet sovereignty was the uh, the word they used, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and, and promoting essentially, you know, a relatively conservative position on the status of sovereignty at the United Nations over other norms uh, about, you know, protecting uh, human rights, especially in opposition to the, the governments in charge. I think, yeah, there aren't a lot of us who would object to things like 
China wanting proportionate voting shares in in the IMF. And that's something that that it it has run into a lot of frustration with. That's part of the reason why they started the AIIB in the first place. Uh, There are a lot of people who would would say that, of course, as a major technology player, it should have a seat at the table when it comes to establishing things like 5G standards, a lot of different technology standards. But I think there are a lot of people who would object to uh, what China is trying to sell in, in terms of human rights. More specifically, a lot of pluralistic democracies are very suspicious now that China is trying to push its own uh, illiberal message, especially when it comes to overseas Chinese populations, to the Chinese people in the diaspora. Uh, how do you respond to that? Do you think that that is a problem? Uh, do you think that we've we've? Uh, yeah, I think that you know, to the extent that um, Chinese sort of overseas influence efforts to shape public opinion in a way that paints. China in a more positive light and to silence criticism, you know, that infringes on democratic freedoms of speech. It, uh, to the extent that it occurs on campuses, it infringes on academic freedoms. And I, you know, I think to borrow from what a previous guest, Ryan Haas, said, we need to distinguish quite clearly what's in bounds and out of bounds. Right. And it's one thing for the Chinese government to promote Chinese language and culture, or even to run you know, paid advertisements, uh, you know, by the China Daily, um, as long as it's clearly marked as such, uh, right. you know, that's that's transparent. What's, so you know, what's anything that the is... The Moines Register are fine. Well, right? I mean, those are on the borderline. It depends on how big the subtitle that says, you know, paid for by the China Daily. Right. Well, I think what's really problematic is the really covert, you know, coercive or corrupt efforts to, to influence politicians, uh, to influence and shut down dissent, you know, wherever it arises. Yeah, I, I would I would fully agree. Uh, and do you think that that the American or again this has just been in the United States, but it's in, been especially pronounced in countries like New Zealand, and Australia. Do you think that the response has been proportionate to the threat? I think that you know laws against undue foreign interference are certainly appropriate uh, and are I think one of the main ways in which you know, combating this kind of uh, influence uh, can take place. Right. right. Yeah, yeah I, I would certainly agree with that. that. Um, let's get back to this idea of making the world safe for autocracy. Do you think that Beijing has played any discernible role in in the actual retreat from democracy globally? Uh, or has this been sort of a, a passive role? I mean, what I'm talking about are things like the rise of, of everything from tin pot dictators like Duterte in the Philippines to Viktor Orban in Hungary or Zeman in, in, in Czechia or... Uh, illiberal regimes that that have ensconced themselves in traditional democ or not maybe not traditional but post ninety one democracies like Poland. Mm. We've seen a lot of this retreat. Has China played a role in this? I think there's a greater risk of exaggerating China's role and not recognizing the domestic factors that are and other international factors that are leading to democratic backsliding uh, around the world. Uh, you know, China has done some things first to demonstrate that autocracy can work, uh, so leading by example. It's also made you know cheap financing available to governments that wouldn't otherwise have access to it. Um, it has exported some technologies that illiberal governments can use to surveil their populations. But I don't think that it has, uh, you know, by and large been the main force, uh, you know, driving democratic backsliding and, and right. erosion. I think, yeah, maybe Russia has has had a greater role. Although that's actually in debate as well. Maybe a matter for another time. But what, one thing that China has done, if it hasn't maybe pushed its own version of state capitalism, is it certainly pushed this idea of performance legitimacy, hasn't it? This idea that a state should be 
regarded as legitimate if it has provided for basic needs of, of humanity, if it has grown the economy, has maintained social stability, has performed. Right. As I, you know, as I said before, I think that uh, you know, China has long promoted a version of human rights that was grounded in the sort of social and economic prosperity of the people. It is not taking a particular stance on what type of government is best suited for all countries around the world. In this way, you know, China is, you know, has also promoted a certain sense of exceptionalism and and referred to the sort of unique history and, and, and path that China has been on and has been reluctant to say that other countries, in fact, has explicitly denied that other countries should copy uh, or import China's model. Right. It's been all, all pull and no push when it comes to these other countries who do want to import it. I mean, I think I've said it before on this show, and I, I think it's, it's true. I think I have to attribute this correctly to I think this, the fellow's name was Greg Blandino. He's somebody that I had known uh, socially in, in Beijing. He suggested that there are equally arrogant forms of exceptionalism held by the United States and by China, that the American exceptionalism says that our institutes and our values are true in all times and all places and valid and should be sort of pushed out into the world, whereas the Chinese are kind of the opposite. They say, well, these are so historically specific and so contingent and so you know uh, unique to China that uh, – you you shouldn't bother that these <laughs> no one else has these same conditions and i think there's there's something definitely to that i mean not 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 that i think that it's true that i think that it's something that that many chinese people even in the leadership hold to I mean, I think a place to look for, you know, what is China transmitting to other governments um, is what's going on in the kind of uh, academies that they host foreign officials and dignitaries at. What kinds of things are they being are they training others in? Uh, what is what is the economic and the technical advice that they're giving? I think there is a way in which China is helping other autocracies work better, you know, and that may make those autocracies more resistant to pressures for democratic change. Right. right more resilient in, in a lot of ways. Uh, what are some of those ways? So capacity building in things like what, police techniques or? There's policing, there's, uh, you know, literally building the infrastructure or in many of these countries, uh, whether that's, you know, bridges, dams, or sanitation plants, or wiring the the surveillance network and telecommunications. Yeah, and maybe we should talk about that because that has been one of the pieces that has, has gotten quite a bit of attention and, and rightly so. The way that Technology, uh, especially the technologies of surveillance, have been exported. These technologies are themselves very much double-edged swords, no? I mean, they have uses that are not so nefarious as well. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out that the same could be said for many technologies that are exported from the United States. I I remember in in the early 2000s how people were very critical about uh, companies like Cisco getting involved in building the Chinese internet because they believed it could be used for suppression. And, you know, I think the same argument was was being held uh, in, in, in that time. Yeah, you know, so the same technologies that can be used to control an unruly Islamist mob in the Middle East can be turned on democratic dissenters in in China or in Hong Kong, say, right? I mean, or 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 anywhere else in the world. Well, I would say that 
you know, on the side of continuity, you know, China has always, uh, you know, regarded the internet as potentially subversive and has yeah. been working, uh, you know, over time to figure out how to use it and other advanced technology to strengthen authoritarian rule in China and to uh, use it to gather information that would enable it to respond, but also preempt and and, and prevent any kind of challenge to CCP's uh, survival in office. And it seems like they've, uh, you know, turned the tide a bit on that um, in, in terms of figuring out how to use technology uh, to better control society. And and one of the, I think one of the real concerns is that they're now using the fruits of that knowledge uh, to help others and, and perhaps leapfrog some of the challenges that they faced. Again, is this more push or is this more pull? There, I think we need a whole lot more research on the individual yeah. cases. I, you know, the New York Times did this really interesting piece on Ecuador where you know, they had access to the records of the system that the Chinese helped to build. Um, but it was really under the, the new government that they you know, invited the New York Times in and in trying to turn back some of the previous Ecuadorian regime's kind of autocratic excesses. So this here right, is a fascinating case study that you know we look look further into. You know, why was it built? And this is just one case. What about you know many of the countries you know, in, in Africa that have similarly adopted Chinese technology? Why did they import this technology? What were the alternative sources that they considered? Um, ultimately, what were the political effects of this of this technology? What if they hadn't adopted it? What was the counterfactual? What would governance look like there instead? All these are questions that you know I haven't yet answered, or you know I hope I or others you know have the opportunity to do so yeah. because otherwise Graduate students yeah. in the audience should be taking notes. <laughs> exactly. and, and these are all really rich areas for research uh, and important, really important ones. In in your piece on uh, making the world safe for autocracy, you, you write that Beijing has projected a kind of parochial ethnocentric brand of authoritarian nationalism. Uh, that vision, you write, may be intended to help preserve the CCP's domestic rule, but it is more likely to repel international audiences than attract them. I, I think it's pretty clear that that's been the case. Uh, but is your point then that we should just not worry, uh, that we can just count on China's brand just finding no real purchase internationally and just you know let them go on doing what they're doing in full conf- confidence that they're just going to to, to mess it up, they're going to sort of fail at it, that we'll just let them have all the rope they want and they'll dutifully hang themselves with it? Or or what's the message here? Should we just not worry? No, I think that we should be worried, but we should be worried, you know, really for our own sakes about the state of our democracy here at home, the state of the international system and the state of our alliances. I think that you know, pointing that out is is really to say that you know China is not infallible, and the direction that it's headed in here, uh, particularly in Xinjiang, as well as the you know growing repression throughout uh, society, uh, is really troubling, and uh, it is not a it's not a good strategy for the Chinese leadership to be pursuing on its own terms, regardless of the growing competition between the United States and China. Uh, I mean, I certainly agree with you on that. Uh, I think that it's it's there's no, there's no way this ends well, no matter what China does at this point. Uh, but you talk in your piece about concerns over Xinjiang uh, growing among the Organization of Islamic Co- Cooperation. But just this last week, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but there was a letter uh, in support, essentially, of China's policies in Xinjiang that was signed by quite a number of countries, including a number of Islamic countries that had formerly been pretty critical of China for this. Uh, does this suggest maybe that, that China's efforts to make the world safe for autocracy have maybe made more headway than you might have thought and, and that maybe we should be more concerned about this? Uh, because 
it, it, it does have humanitarian implications for things like uh, the atrocity in Xinjiang. I think it reflects, unfortunately, the sad reality of power politics. And I don't think it has as much to do with the appeal of uh, Chinese-style autocracy as it does China's material influence right. um, and not wanting to you know, alienate Beijing on an, an issue that they deem you know, so core to their interests. Yeah, I, I think that that's the uh, the ugly truth of it. Uh, speaking of power politics, uh, this idea of a clash of civilizations uh, keeps coming up. Uh, maybe a bit of background for those of you who who don't remember. Um, maybe you can remind people about this unfortunate interview that Anne Marie Slaughter, who was a former State Department director of policy planning, did with the the current occupant of that office at the State Department with Kyron Skinner. Uh, what it, what was it that she said there exactly? She was responding to a you know in a Q and A session. Um, you know she referred to China as sort of the first non Caucasian uh, civilization with a different ideology um, that the United States has had to to encounter, which is of course like wrong. You know you know think uh, Japan or you know as far as ideology you know Nazi Germany the Soviet Union. Um, and she she didn't go quite so far as to call it a clash of civilizations. She just you know, but it's you know bordered on that. And, and since then, she hasn't repeated that, and and and, and privately has, uh, my understanding is also distanced herself from those remarks as not ones that were really in, intended, I guess you could say, uh, or well chosen, I guess. But you know, since then, John Bolton referenced elements of a clash of civilizations and uh, remarks earlier this week. So the the idea seems to still be. Kicking around um, much to to my chagrin and, and that of others who think that this is really a really unfortunate if not also dangerous theory to be guiding US China relations uh, John Bolton is the least favorite of my of the Boltons I mean worse than than Roos Bolton or, or Ramsey <laughs> Bolton or even Michael Bolton I don't know, that's pretty hard to beat but uh, but but John Bolton's uh, reference to the, this this formulation by Samuel Huntington. What exactly is wrong with it? What is it that, that you find so objectionable to this idea? And you know, just to, to sort of give a, a quick summary of it, he imagines this world that's divided into, what, five or seven different sort of civilizational spheres, and he sees sort of uh, a kind of Russo-Islamic world where Russia sort of has dominance of the Middle East and a Euro-African world and a Confucian world where somehow China and Japan are in the same camp. I'm not sure how that works out. Right, exactly. I think that I mean, basically ignores geopolitical realities that this, you know, these constructed civilizations are you know, not necessarily uh, sort of internally homogeneous um, and they don't have the so-called bloody borders um, uh, that that Huntington, you know, sort of is this clash of civilizations is sort of most closely associated with. Right. I mean, I think fundamentally it borders on being kind of a racial theory yeah. of, uh, you know, two societies, of course, you know, ignoring that the United States is not predominantly white. Um, or not for long. Uh, right, or, or, you know, it doesn't, shouldn't be defined as a right. white civilization um, confronting a, you know, a homogeneously uh, Chinese civilization. Uh, ironically, it wasn't even a white person who, who brought this up at the State Department. Kyron Skidder right. is African-American, right. which is... Yeah, I'm curious, though. I, I suspect that there are plenty of people who in China who would read this or hear about this and would accept this idea that the United States and China somehow do represent two separate civilizational states that are kind of at odds with, with one another. Um, you, you have a lot of interlocutors. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, maybe, maybe their maybe thinking isn't very sophisticated about this, but like a lot of them would accept that idea. You know, and I mean, even Xi Jinping at a you know the conference on a dialogue between Asian civilizations said that you know 
there are these unique different civilizations and they should all basically get along in harmony. And so, but, you know, what does that mean? It's, a, you know, again, you know, at the same time as you're promoting kind of harmony among civilizations, they're forcibly detaining uh, as many as a million or more of their own ethnic Uyghur minority and trying to stamp out the sort of the unique cultural expression of that identity. So, you know, I just don't, I think it's kind of a non-starter um, right. as far as an analytical lens and a, um, I think it's potentially you know, very dangerous, particularly as we um, are concerned about indiscriminate profiling of uh, ethnically Asian Chinese uh, Americans here in the United States. Right, 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 right. right. That's probably the most pernicious aspect of that Absolutely. language. So you've done research recently that's going to be in a forthcoming article, I think, in International Studies Quarterly, uh, that you hinted at in a piece for the monkey cage. And if I, if I have this right, this research suggests that support for Beijing domestically seems to be bolstered whenever they talk tough, uh, even if that talk is not followed up by action, which I, I think actually sounds probably like it would be true for Trumpsters in America, too. Can, can you talk about this? Give us a little preview of that journal article. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, the backdrop to this is that, you know, many in international relations argue that leaders need to follow tough talk with action or else they pay some kind of reputational penalty or audience costs for looking soft. And uh, what my co-author and I were interested in exploring was the idea of bluster, which is that, you know, you can recover some of this public approval by talking tough, even if you don't follow it through. So we conducted, uh, you know, these surveys uh, on the Chinese internet at the time when, uh, you know, the South China Sea, East China Sea were really hot disputes. And so, you know, we invoked a dispute over whether or not foreign aircraft would or would not comply with China's newly declared uh, air defense identification zone in the East China Sea. And, you know, even though, of course, in the end, China basically did nothing to enforce that, we found in our in our survey, which was sort of done experimentally, where you reminded them that basically the Chinese government declared the zone and then didn't do anything, um, that declaring it was still better than not declaring it in terms of boosting popular support. Not included in that particular study, but in, a, in, a, in that paper, but in a the same time in a parallel study, we also were conducting these at the same time as U.S. freedom of navigation operations were taking place in the South China Sea. We were interested there, too, in whether or not talking tough could help the Chinese government recover some of the disapproval of seeming feckless. The legitimacy deficit. Is mm-hmm. right. uh, I don't know if you heard. We, we talked to Andrew Chubb about the, the paper that he did mm-hmm. uh, looking at South China Sea. And again, just sort of looking at, at nationalist rhetoric. Uh, in this case, though, he was looking at whether it seemed to be uh, the actions were done in order to address some perceived legitimacy deficit. And he found that, no, that was not, in fact, the case, that often they did these things, that they did you know, assertive actions that, that uh, they did not in any way transmit to the public. They, in fact, tried to sort of keep them down, which, is, which seems like it would defeat the purpose. If your po- point is you're playing to a domestic, domestic audience. audience, you would think you would at least talk, talk about, about it. it. Um, you know, that sounds fascinating. You also put out a paper in the, in the Journal of Contemporary China recently called How Hawkish is the Chinese Public? Uh, another look at rising nationalism and, and Chinese foreign policy, which is, you know, it's just your killing zone. You, you do talk about nationalism uh, a lot. And it's a, it's a topic that I'm really fascinated by. I've written about it a bit. We've, again, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show this, the, with Andrew Chubb. Uh, one, one of you, a graduate student here at Cornell, in fact, uh, Chris, Christopher Cairns, we talked to him about a paper that he did looking at, at online reaction and, and uh, censorship during the 2012 uh, dispute 
well, it was after the the Tokyo government nationalized the the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, and there was a, a huge sort of wave of popular uh, dissatisfaction. And he looked at he he basically showed how the Chinese government could sort of turn it on and off like a tap. I mean, it was quite effective at using censorship to to either sort of gin up or to to damp down. Uh, nationalist responses. So what you looked at in, in this paper uh, was really interesting. You looked at kind of a generational gap. What did you What did you find out about uh, the nature of nationalism uh, in, in looking at, actually, it was sort of a meta-study, right? right? You mm-hmm. looked at, at, at a group of different uh, surveys that had been done. So a couple of takeaways. You know, first, I think, uh, you know, surveys can help us establish sort of the baseline public opinion that the Chinese government faces as it tries to navigate international disputes. I agree with Chris Karens and with Andrew Chubb that the government has a lot of uh, leeway to maneuver vis-a-vis public opinion. That's part of what my article in International Studies Quarterly shows, is that rhetoric can obviously shape public opinion, and it's important to, to document that. But they still face costs for doing so. Um, mm-hmm. And the more hawkish the public is, the you know the harder it is, or the more the Chinese government has to dial back that sort of appetite for conflict when trying to uh, you know finesse a particular diplomatic situation in which maybe the you know the online public is calling for war, teach them a lesson, uh, take back those islands, drive out the Japanese, drive out the Americans. And that's not, going to be sort of, there's no no winning scenario there from a sort of a military standpoint at this point in time. So, you know, to, how does the Chinese government sort of walk that tightrope? I think the, we've, what I've found in in both in the online survey as well as this meta study of um, nationally representative and then some urban surveys of of the Chinese public is that the the Beijing area study and then uh, it draws on Andrew Chubb's survey of uh, five different cities as well as a a nationwide uh, survey done by the Research Center for Contemporary China that overall opinion is quite hawkish and it's especially hawkish among younger Chinese and younger defined as 78 or after or after 1980, it's pretty indifferent to which of those uh, cutoffs you use. Mm-hmm. And I can't say after you know the post-90s generation, there's just not enough data in those surveys right. to evaluate if they are more or less. But you know, looking pre-post-1978, pre-post-1980, um, the younger generation on many questions uh, tends to be more hawkish, as does the sort of the online population and then the sample of elites that the the Research Center on Contemporary China was able to to reach suggests across a range of issues that on public is pretty resolved, you know, including endorsing sending the troops, uh, investing more in the military, viewing the U.S. military presence in East Asia as a threat, and you know there might be declining perceptions of sort of China being a superior country to all others. You know, these other measures of national identity might suggest sort of reasons for optimism, but uh, on questions about foreign policy preferences and attitudes, um, this measure of hawkishness, I think it's far too early to conclude that, you know, attitudes there are soft. Connected to the other paper then uh, for me, if if bluster works, that it doesn't need to be followed by action, uh, are these increasingly hawkish younger people also sort of assuaged by just mere bluster? Mm. I mean, do we? that suggests to me that the cost incurred by non-action isn't so high after all. I don't know if it, if it rises in proportion to the sort of expressed hawkishness or not. I guess that, 
I'm not, I'm not sure what, if you have thoughts on that. Right, and it could also be a time-limited strategy that, you know, if you need to bluster your way out of every uh, crisis scenario, you know, what? how does that change the baseline opinion? You know, and this was something that I found in, you know, interviewing nationalist activists is that they also become very, very cynical about the Chinese government's manipulation of, of popular sentiment in these crises. So uh, over time, you could have a more hawkish and more disaffected, as in unhappy with the Chinese government population, which would be a real tinderbox for not just the CCP, but also the world. A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece where I looked at, at I mean, I just read a whole bunch of stuff about uh, about. Hindutva. I had read a lot of stuff about Russian nationalism. I'd read this really great book uh, by Charles Clover, and I had just talked to him. I'd been read a book called Age of Anger by Pankaj Mishra, which looked at a lot of sort of nationalisms around the world. And it, after reading that, I came away thinking, you know what? I am not so worried about Chinese nationalism. I, I felt like Chinese nationalism was just sort of a garden variety reactive nationalism that you know, people were sort of sore-headed about things that were receding into an ever more distant past, that it was, was quickly being sort of addressed by a, a, a better and better uh, economic reality in the present, uh, that it no longer had to feel you know, the sting of humiliation. It didn't have that kind of lash of recency anymore. And I, I, I felt also, importantly, that it didn't have a religious core around which to cohere, unlike Hindu nationalism or unlike Russian nationalism, where you, you have orthodoxy. And you know, we've been talking about rising nationalism for as long as I've been looking at China, you know, 35 years or, or whatever. It's, you know, has it really, what has it risen to? I, I still don't know that, that it's something we should lose that much sleep over. I mean, I, I find it often to be quite the paper tiger that it, 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 the same people who will, you know, uh, get work up a huge head of steam about nationalism uh, are really eager to, you know, apply to American universities. Or, or it's just, it just rings hollow to me still. Mm. I think it is important to put it in that perspective as we are concerned about, you know, what's the scope of Beijing's ambitions, whether that's, you know, the Chinese public or the Chinese leadership thinking about Chinese nationalism in the context of other nationalisms, especially nationalisms that have been far more disruptive and radical in the world um, that have had a far more expansive uh, character or messianic character. You know, I think, obviously, I don't think that Chinese nationalism is particularly, um, I, I think, it is not benign, but it is also not bent on, I think, the destruction of other societies or you what's know, the revising death toll narratives. of Chinese nationalism? And I mean, I don't, what what is the the recent death toll that we can chalk straight up to? You know, Chinese nationalists. Well, I mean, I think we need to look in Xinjiang for that. Yeah, yeah. Xinjiang, know, Xinjiang and Tibet. Yeah. You know, that I think it's within China's borders. And then I think Hong Kong and Taiwan. You know, and of course the uninhabited, you know, shoals and islands in the South China Sea. Uh, Again, you know, the death tolls are low. Right. I, I agreed. Agreed. So you know, I think you know, Taiwan and Hong Kong are the the main places that we would be uh, concerned are, are concerned about the the costs of Chinese nationalism. But you know, I don't. You know, unlike previous rising powers that had been, you know, fueled by kind of a revanchist nationalism. I think that the real problem for Beijing about this nationalist basis of its domestic political myth-making is that they're pretty tone-deaf to others' concerns, yes. right? Yeah. There, there's a lot of 
victimization. A lot of, uh, you know, I've been the victim. I'm not going to hear anything about your hurt feelings. So in that sense, uh, you know, they're, I think they face real challenges reassuring others uh, or seeing that others feel a genuine threat from what China has done. Their inability to listen to us try to frame Tibet or Xinjiang in a colonial context it comes from the same victim. It's like, no, 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 colonialism, we, we're we the victims of colonialism. We couldn't possibly be perpetrators of, of that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. I, I uh, uh, would love to have you back on to, to just talk specifically about this topic of Chinese nationalism at some point. But um, in the meantime... You know, tell us, tell people where they can find your your writing. Uh, Monkey Cage is a really great great place. You've, you've published quite a number of pieces re- mm-hmm. recently, just in the last six months. There, where else can we find you? Um, you know, I've put all my publications and pieces on my website, jessicanchenweiss dot com. It's probably the best place to find me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and on Twitter. Yeah, and your Twitter handle is uh, Jessica C Weiss. Jessica C. Weiss. Definitely follow Jessica. She's, she's a, a great one. Uh, it's just been great having you uh, on the show. Really great uh, that we could take the time to do this. And I uh, look forward to continuing to read you in coming months. You're just on a tear, and so keep it going. I'm glad your twins are over too now. <laughs> Uh, let's move on to the recommendation segment of the show. Uh, but first, let me remind listeners really quickly that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Take a moment and subscribe to SubChina Access to start getting the daily newsletter delivered right to your inbox. Membership gets you an early version of this podcast, usually on Monday evenings, U.S. East Coast time instead of Thursday. So uh, it also gets you discounts to our conferences, free admission to our live shows. And, of course, a berth aboard our Slack channel where you can join our editors, myself included, live and take part in our chats with guests. And I, I'd love to have you on, Jessica, as, as one of the, the SubChina chat guests. I think you do a great job. Uh, so do sign up. Show your support. Okay, recommendations. Jeremy's not here, so we're going to have to skip him. Jessica, what do you have for us? Uh, a book and a movie. Uh, okay. Start with a movie. Uh, Always Be My Maybe. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Ali Wong and Randall Park were terrific. And I think particularly when you know women of color in Congress are told to go back uh, to the places from which they came, I think it feels more important than ever that we see mainstream media depicting the lives of all Americans, uh, no matter when they or their parents uh, immigrated to the United States. You best believe. believe I punched Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that that was, was just... Keanu Reeves, his turn in that movie was just amazing. <laughs> it was just so fun. incredible. I, I, yeah, I had low expectations. I, I'm not a rom-com kind of guy, but, but man, man that, was, that was, funny. was funny. It was just great. great. And, and, and Ali Wong is terrific. If you haven't seen her stand up, it's just, it's just hysterical. <laughs> She's just terrific. Great recommendation. She had a movie and a book. And a book, uh, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. I, I, I loved it. Yeah, I read that. Biracial myself, so uh, really fascinated to not only learn about his experience in a very different political and cultural context growing up, but also you know moving here and. I, I, I did that his stand-up on audiobook. He reads it himself. Yeah. And it's just great. That's one of the rare. I mean, audiobooks are. I, I love them myself because I drive a lot and um, I like when I'm doing dishes and stuff. But boy, boy that's I mean, a that real page turner. It, it got me oh, through with some particularly bad moments in the first trimester of pregnancy. Go just great. He's brilliant. I, I adore him. No, oh, great, great recommendations both. Okay, so mine is. Um, a very questionable parenting move I've made recently, which I'm watching Breaking Bad with my 13-year-old son uh, in the evenings. We're on a trip together. We're kind of driving around um, right now on our way to Montreal tomorrow, 
uh, Adirondacks first. Uh, but uh, we're watching. <laughs> it's, it's actually better than I remember. I mean, it's just as thrilling. Um, I now, of course, I can focus on details that I missed while just kind of curled up in a fetal position with anxiety watching it the first time around. I mean, seriously, that thing, that show, especially like toward the end of the first season, sent me into like full blown panic attacks. I had real trouble finishing it because it was so anxiety inducing. <laughs> but my God, it's just so great. Uh, so uh, I highly recommend rewatching it. Uh, and it, it's, it's lost nothing. It's lost nothing at all. Anyway, Breaking Bad. Um, Jessica, thank you so much. It's so great to, to have you on, and I look forward to having you on the show again. Kaiser, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks. And uh, Jeremy, we'll get you next time, man. I'm really bummed. But anyway, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo. That's me and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women in China, New Voices and Ta for Ta, and the Middle Earth Podcast about the culture industry in China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.